0: This is Power, Power Athlete, Athlete Radio, right,
1: with your hosts, Denny K, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs.
2: Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Mike Boyle is an everything. From professional sports like hockey, football, baseball, track and field, and basketball, Coach Boyle has trained just about every kind of athlete imaginable. Because of this, he's able to draw from his experience over the course of decades. Not only has Mike's body of work served as a nearly lifelong study of human performance, it has also proved to yield amazing athletic successes. Listening to Coach Boyle discuss his coaching style and methodology will make you wish you trained under him. He takes an unpretentious yet definitive approach to strength and conditioning. An outspoken advocate for unilateral strength work, Mike humbly describes his findings as a, quote, brief 16-year-long experiment. What's more is that his coaching presence and conviction seems to be that of a young SNC and c despite his having three decades of blood, sweat, and tears invested into the field. Stay tuned for some of the funniest and best coaching anecdotes from someone who never stops seeking perfection. This is episode 147.
1: Power Athlete Nation, what is up? You got Luke here with John at Power Athlete HQ. You got Tex over in DC joining us on Power Athlete Radio, and we are excited to have a man, the myth, the legend uh, of one of the big names in strength and conditioning, Mike Boyle, on, uh, on the podcast today. And why are we so excited? Because Mike is a sharp dude. He's been at this for a long time. And, uh, and we're finally at odds with someone who we parallel in philosophy with, but we have certain disagreements. For example, Mike Boyle, strength and conditioning offers the most comprehensive performance enhancement training in the country. We disagree because we think that's us. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. So uh but we'll no we're gonna get into the ins and outs of what that's called marketing,
3: just so we know. Guys. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think we actually
0: stole our mission statement from you. Yeah, so exactly. I'm pretty sure it was a kind of, We I mean, were inspired, John. Well just Cut out the massage there. Well,
3: just so you know, a lot of people have st- stolen my bio, too. Every time I read the internet, it's like <laughs> as trained players for the NBA, NHL. I mean, like people, I said, if they met the guy in the elevator once, then they trained him, and it's on their bio. It's amazing how many uh,
1: well, immensely we got,
3: qualified 25 year well, we bio are bio for others,
1: so. Yeah,
2: well, it <laughs> sounds
0: good. I mean, uh, I, well, I've been fortunate to have trained these people and actually trained with them as training partners, so I figured that works good, too, you know.
1: So, Mike is – strengthcoachblog.com, Mike Bull, Strength Coach, uh, Strength Coach Radio. So, Mike, tell us where you're at, what you're in. Give us a little background, if anyone out there. Other than
0: getting in early and buying all the good URLs.
1: Yes. <laughs> Which I, uh,
3: well, I was, though, early adopters, right? If you, start, if you read the literature, I was an early adopter. I was a Ryan Lee guy. Ryan Lee came along and said, hey, guess what, guys? There's this thing called the Internet, and uh, and it's going to be really big. And I was smart enough to listen and realize, wow, I should – I need a website. And I started out with just – I actually got michaelboyle.biz because michaelboyle.com was a chef in Denver, and that's (laughs) true. Um, And then we – he actually bought strengthcoach.com from somebody else and had that domain name sitting aside. And so we were – we've been very – you know, strengthcoach blog was just – Anthony Renner, who does the podcast with me, had said, you really need to do a blog. And and even now it's funny. Like blogs are kind of passe. And so, you know, you've got Twitter and Instagram. You know, I keep trying. I, it's hard to be cool at 56, just so you know, it gets harder and harder <laughs> to stay, like, cool and social media savvy as you're aging along here. As I have been at it probably, if I'm looking at the three of you, I'm guessing longer than most of you have been alive. I probably had my first strength and conditioning coach somewhere around your birth years. So uh, so let's
1: track back. Tell us about the you... journey.
3: What year was it? Did, was it was uh,
1: 1982. 82? Yeah, I just yeah. had i just been born. Tex was just, just a twinkle born. in his father's eye. I was still pretty young at that point.
3: Yeah, and so 19, and I was lucky. So you talk about, I always tell people, the outliers moment in your life, right? I show up at Springfield College in 1977, I guess. Fall of 1977, and I, and I could be wrong about some of this, but I'm pretty sure when I walk into my dorm in the fall of 1977, there's a big character that looks like you two guys right now, like big, obviously he lifted weight. He's standing at the front door, kind of greeting everybody as they go in. His name's Mike. Great big guy. Looks like he lifts weights. I'm a young kid. Thinks he's a football player, which I I said my, my athletic career was ended by lack of size and lack of ability, something that happens with a lot of people. But I run into this guy who ends up being Mike Wojcik, who is the longest tenured strength coach in the National Football League. He has more Super Bowl rings than anybody in the history of the league. He's got six and um, he was my dorm director my freshman year. Patriots and now the Cowboys last Yeah. So uh, my my last year I played for
0: the Patriots in uh, 2008 and I retired in 2009, but yeah, he was our strength coach in 2008.
3: Yeah. So he was my dorm director and, the One of the football coaches at that time was Rusty Jones, who is second longest tenured guy in the National Football League, who was doing nutritional research and looking at carbohydrate replacement post-exercise. Mike was coaching throwers. And, you know, we were reading Yesis Journal, Soviet Sport Review then was the name of it before it was even Yesis Journal. And Mike was talking about plyometrics. He was talking about words that I couldn't find in the literature at the time in 70s, 80s. And I kind of got dropped into the middle of this and started, believe it or not, com- in powerlifting and realized that at that time I was going to be an athletic trainer because there was no such thing as a strength and conditioning coach. didn't exist, at least not in my mind. And I sort of maybe by the end of my college career realized kind of that Boyd Eppley existed and that there was a guy getting paid to do this somewhere, but we didn't know anybody who was. And Mike and Rusty left and went to – Mike went to Syracuse with Dick McPherson and um, actually became the assistant track coach throwing coach in uh, the football strength coach. So he had a dual role job and Rusty went and got a dual role job in Pittsburgh with the Pittsburgh Maulers in the USFL. We want to get a little more historical. You guys might not remember USFL either, but that was like the, uh, the, was the, the job. 80s version of the XFL. Exactly. And, but these guys suddenly, I was like, Oh my God, people have jobs as strength and conditioning coaches. And I realized right about then, I'm like, okay, I don't think I'm going to be an athletic trainer very long. Uh, I need to be a strength coach. So I quit my, I quit. Got a job as an athletic trainer for six months at Boston University and then realized, nope, not doing this. Quit my job and volunteered as the strength coach, I think, in 83. And now this is how crazy the world is. So our point, our basketball coach in 1983 is Rick Pitino. Our point guard is Brett Brown, who's now the 76ers head coach. Our off guard is Sean Teague, who is the father of the Teague brothers that now play in Indiana. So we were at that time, I was like really immersed in the whole basketball thing. Then I got – ice hockey was obviously the big sport at BU, so I got heavily involved in ice hockey. And we still – we were one double-A football. But that was sort of the start of the journey. And I used to get a lot of Boston College guys. I started – I actually – in the 80s, I invented combine training. And you can look that up. I get credit for it in a book, which means I did do it. No one else has credit.
1: <laughs> so you mean or you're not just putting it on your own uh, Twitter?
3: No, is- I didn't know. Someone else said I invented combine training, which is way better than having said that I invented it myself. But I did – I was training guys in the '80s for the NFL Combine, wow. and you know the modern-day version of this thing. And believe it or not, we had a hundred. I was talking to I had to talk to a guy the other day because I've had some of the best Combine performances ever in history in terms of Mike Mamula. We were in Sports Illustrated in the '90s. He like blew the Combine out of Mike. the water.
0: Uh, you, you know, the first time I heard your name was uh, via Mike Mamula because I played in Philly with Mike. Yeah, and so that's how first and time I, had I heard your Mike. Mike.
3: Greg Jefferson I trained probably was there, might have been yeah. there at the same time as you. Oh, yeah, big no, John John from Virginia. I can't even
0: think of uh, his yeah, name, the Uh yeah, um, the big there. John uh six seven, six eight. Oh, yeah, it wasn't Anderson, it was um
3: I can't believe I can't remember it. God, uh, I, I,
0: I can picture his face. He uh uh Greg was a big strong dude. Uh John yeah. uh was a would stand straight up and give you yep. a chance every time. And uh Mike was really a hit or miss dude. Like some, yep. it was unbelievable. Like that guy couldn't be, couldn't be blocked. And other days, you were driving him all over the field.
3: Yeah, and so I had those, and I had Eric Swan, who was the only, I think, the only the second non-college player to ever get drafted in the top ten. So He's- I really did. Like we started, we were doing this, but you know, in in the eighties, and then I started getting a lot of Boston College guys and training them because again, most they didn't really have a strength coach even at that time. They had, a, I think, they had an athletic trainer then too, who was kind of doubling as their strength coach and. So I was lucky to be able to get to work with a lot of really good athletes. Sorry, my dog is barking again here. But um, so, you know, it's just, it's been really when you think about, you know, that's why I would say to people, the one thing I have over most everybody else is just experience. I've been doing it for a really long time and I've never really stopped. I mean, even now I have, I'm training Kayla Harrison, who's the Olympic gold medalist in judo. I've been helping train Allie Raisman, who's Olympic gold medalist in gymnastics. We've been able to do this across a whole bunch of different sports and managed. So I got a World Series ring with the Red Sox a couple of years ago. Spent two years in Major League Baseball. So I've had a pretty wide range of experiences. So it's almost as
0: if uh, training athletes is kind of a universal deal that, um, you know, the idea of almost sport specific training is kind of a, you know, I, I always call bullshit on it because I've trained athletes in all the disciplines and I find that there's universal things that all athletes can do and how you you know, set those foundations and then allow them to go on and into actually their training for their sport. And uh, it kind of just drives me crazy when I hear all these people talking about doing sports-specific training in the weight room. And it's kind of shake oh, my head.
3: I'm like, exactly. hey, man. I would, yeah, 100% agree. And that's – I would say that if you – the first book I wrote, Functional Training for Sports in 2004 – I said that. I said it's actually probably sports general training. Here's my dog who's trying to snuggle in here and uh, get, in the, get on the podcast. But uh, this <laughs> well, is I, one of three that are in the room with me. I may actually have to exit the room so that I can uh, not be in this situation. I'm going to apologize. I'm going to walk and talk. Hopefully it won't disrupt my Wi-Fi. But, yeah, I mean, I actually came up. I, I used the term sports general training and said that it, this 90% of what we do is very general and maybe 10% is specific. I've gotten into training baseball pitchers, which is really one of these areas where there really is some specificity and it's kind of fun to do. But as a general rule of thumb, it's, you know, uh, Patrick Ward who works for the Seahawks now, his wife said one time, push, pull, legs, core. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much, you know, and then, okay, let's, you know, even with like with the kids now, it's like, okay, throw stumping, jump on something run fast, lift some stuff, we're good. Mm-hmm. And then I think you can disagree over the sort of the hows and the whys. Am I going to do it on one leg? Am I going to do it on two? I kind of like the – it's really funny. I've been a big unilateral fan, but and mainly because of training guys like you. I saw as the guys got older, they didn't tolerate the bilateral stuff, the stuff that I could do to kids in college. Suddenly I couldn't do to – some of my older clients anymore. I found that, and I had guys, I started writing an article that I should finish on called Training a Client for 17 Years. I had one of my guys who just wow. retired from the NHL who I had from 18 up through 35. Wow. And, oh. and what I watched, at 18, he could bench press 305 pounds. He was one of the strongest kids we ever had come into our program at BU. Ended up going, you know, won a couple Stanley Cup rings playing for the New Jersey Devils. And we always talked about the idea. Every year there was another thing he couldn't do. <laughs> right and we used to back squat we used to clean then we used to front squat then we did you know and and eventually by the end it was sort of okay find some stuff that he can do pushing pulling lower body core work that isn't beating up his joints that gets him back to work quote unquote um you know at a at a situation where he can make money again
2: mm-hmm. well and I you,
0: think you actually we hit it out die. of the well, I, I was going to say, you, you hit it out the park. Like, at the end of the day, he's not getting paid to train and lift weights. And I think that's where people get wrapped around the axle. They get so lost in this idea of, like, you know, the sets, percentages, movements, all this. And at the end of the day, if the, uh, if the athlete is doing a training program that allows them to go out and be successful, then that's the efficacy of the program. And that's why I, I just kind of freak out where people start arguing about this minutia. And I'm like, how was the performance? You know, if you have a guy, like you said, you, you kept finding movements that he could do that allowed him to challenge and continue to do his job. And all of a sudden it wasn't like you know I mean obviously being you know enough of a, a flexible thinker that you're like, well shit, we can't do that instead of just forcing him into the box you're like let's find things he can do yeah next best thing and um you know right like, we used to always joke
3: it's like okay let's go back and steal another million dollars yeah because that's
0: that's we, what we were we trying used to tell this
3: like give me the money yeah give me the money. right, <laughs> try to get paid again, yeah. try to go back, make the team one more time, and most of our guys, like a guy like Jay particularly. I mean he was nowhere near as strong in year whatever I don't know how many years he actually played in the NHL he probably played 13 or something like that I mean in year 13 he was so much weaker than he was as an 18 year old coming out of high school or actually he was a 17 year old he was one of those 17 year old college freshmen but he was still there he was still playing he was still able to do it you know at one point he was one of the fastest skaters in the National Hockey League, you know, won his team's fastest skating competition. So the one thing for us, we've got a lot of better than anecdotal data that relates to a lot of the things that we've done. But as you said, there's so many people love the minutia of this thing. They love to talk about triphasic training. I you, If you want to spend more than 30 seconds talking about periodization with me, you're spending way too long. You know what I mean? We're going to change shit up every three weeks. And okay, that's it. Hey, we're done. You know what I mean? Like, it really, like, some guys want to spend, you know, countless hours thinking about, you know, which I had a guy one time arguing with me over, like, Shako versus Smolov squat cycles. And I was like, do you really think anybody who's training athletes cares? But Powerlifters, maybe they care, but athletes don't care.
4: Mike, I was going to ask, could you share some of the signs or kind of symptoms of overuse, overload that you were looking for and there's more experienced athletes to identify, all right, we can't do this anymore, or what
3: can we do? Um, I, I'm going to bring this down to moron on level. I wrote an article one time called Does It Hurt? And I'll ask a guy to do an exercise, and I'll ask him, does that hurt? And if he says yes, then we can't do that exercise anymore. So we're not. I, you know, I said when I was a college strength coach, my job was to pound square pegs into round holes as hard as I could. And that's what I was getting, you know, and I look at people and I think, you know, Greg Cook calls it adding strength to dysfunction. I was like, well, I wasn't adding strength to dysfunction or that was my job. You know, I was sort of, you do this shitty 405 squat and I look at you and think, do you want to try 415? You think you can go up 10? Because, you know, you kind of got deep enough and you didn't get hurt. And that's what we did.
1: So, Mike, was- but, I mean, it's for for an experienced coach like you with an athlete you have a relationship with, and you know their abilities. That does it hurt model works, but if you're working with like a younger athlete uh, who's not even like you know hasn't even sprouted in, in terms of their strength training life cycle, you know things are going to proverbially hurt just because they aren't really conditioned. Like you know Louis Simmons, if the to master kung fu, the training must be severe, right? I mean, there's kind of there's more context behind the does it hurt model,
3: right? Well, I don't think so. In the sense that I think you have to look at it's we're not talking about do reps nine and 10 hurt you in your muscles. We're talking about do reps one and two hurt you in your joints. And I always tell somebody in an ideal world, you would come to me and say, I, my muscles are a little bit sore from that workout. My joints are not sore at all. And I would give you like key points, you know, people pointing to their SI joints or to their lumbar spine or to their patella tendon or to their anterior shoulder, right in front of their rotator cuff. If people are pointing at me and saying, I feel it there. Then, and that's why I said to text above, that's my like flag, like, Hey, that's not good. You know, if some kid looked at me and said, Oh, we did those curls in my arms hurt. I'd be like, that's good. That, that's exactly what I wanted to have happen.
4: When I started strength training,
0: I started training, this old power lifter down the street trained us in high school. It was a guy named George Zangas who uh, invented I know George. Yeah. yeah He's a legend. Yeah. Marathon super suits and all that. I mean, so, yeah. so George lived down the street from me and when I was 14 years old, we'd go and the, George trained us in his garage. And so, you know, so, I mean, that's kind of how I got steeped into strength training.
3: And the difference is for you, you learned how to lift from a, he was a really good lifter.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And he was a Thompson powerlifting coach and Bill yeah. Kazmaier and all these old lifters would always yeah. show up. And our job was to show up and rack weights for three fucking hours while they yeah. drink coffee and ate sandwiches. And then we got to lift after. Yeah. But the one thing that was kind of a negative was, uh, you know, he would always, you know, as things were progressing, like, you know, I mean, it was powerlifting. So we wrapped our knees. I remember always being like, man, every time I wrap my knees, it hurts. And him being like, well, that's normal. And it wasn't yeah. until I developed severe patellar tendonitis that I was like, oh, that probably wasn't the best thing. I mean, to wrap
3: yeah. that early. Well, I remember that from leg extensions. People, when I was a kid, you know, leg extensions, do leg extensions, do leg extensions, you're going to yeah. keep getting hurt. And leg extensions always hurt my knees, so I stopped doing them. I said, they hurt. Squatting doesn't hurt me, but leg extensions really makes my knees hurt. Yeah. And I just started to be, I guess, you know, you think about being intuitive and thinking things through and realizing that, okay, I'm not going to do stuff that hurts, and I mean, I still did it. Were, I mean, I could I could tell you a million stupid stories, but I realized experientially as I went along, after having you know, I've had, like I said I've had back and neck problems for thirty years because I mean, we used to max deadlift every Wednesday, and they weren't pretty. We call
0: uh, we actually changed the name of Deadlift Days to actually the Darkness. So we just realized that any day we pull heavy, it's just going to be a dark day. And the thing is, is we don't like to do it just because I find, geez, I would back squat every single day heavy and a half to not have to deadlift once a week.
3: Yeah. But what I realized, we went back to deadlifts about five years ago because I realized I disliked deadlifts because the way that we deadlifted, which was to try to deadlift as much weight as we possibly could, Mm -hmm. wasn't good for you. (laughs) But then I read Barry Ross's stuff, and I don't know if you're familiar with Barry Ross. He's Allison Felix's coach. Great sprint coach, but he, was, he wrote this article and was talking about a whole book called Bear Powered, and he was talking about how deadlifts were much better for you than squats because it involved more muscle mass. You were using grip strength. You were using upper back strength. You were using mid-trap, lower-trap, and it was one of those where I was like, ooh, I want to really disagree with them, but geez, he's right in the sense that you're not doing that in squatting you're not getting the same kind of loading of the system. But what we realized was happening in deadlifting that we didn't think about and was better was that we're being loaded into flexion. Mm. And so we had to create this really strong anti-flexion force and get really stiff in our back. Whereas I always think like squatting was more of a balancing act. You were going to get a really big weight up on your spine and you're going to try to figure out how to balance it on the top of that system. And you'd have all these compressive issues that we didn't get with deadlifting once we stopped doing ugly deadlifts? You know, uh, uh,
0: Zang has always told me that the best way to train the deadlift was to squat and to ignore it like a pretty girl. So <laughs> we, uh, we literally ignored the deadlift. He told him, he's like, he he, had, he was funny. He had a 315, 405, 495, and a 575 bar all set. And he would go and we'd have to pull one rep of each at the end of the squat workout. And that was all we deadlifted. But he also did <laughs> that, you know, heavy rows. I mean, we did a uh, close grip bench. Seated dumbbells and weighted dips was all we did for upper body, and then we back squat and pulled some deadlifts and that was right. all they ever let us do
3: that was all we did, and that's but that's why if you look at our programming now, it's not that much different. We try to really keep stuff simple, and then we add in like people would look oh what you're doing chops and lifts and hip work, yeah, we'll throw like a, you know the more days you give me, the more shit I'll throw in sure. <laughs> you know like because I can do little rehab prehab stuff and fill space with it and but the reality is, we're doing chin-ups and we're doing rows and we're doing you know, and I just in our case, it's become much more unilateral because I get tired of the back issues, and we all have them. I mean, it's it's crazy because that's the thing I laugh about with lifters is that you have people who have the problems that you're talking about, who are telling you that it's okay and that you should do it anyway, and you're thinking, but you have a back problem, you've yeah. got disc problems, you, know, you get these people who say, oh well, you know, I, I had a fusion, and you're like. Well, if you had a fusion, there was something really wrong with you. Sure, you shouldn't have a fusion. That shouldn't have to happen. Oh, yeah. And we've gotten strong. I mean, we've gotten like crazy strong with this unilateral stuff. I don't know if you've seen some of the videos you posted, mm-hmm. but I got girls uh, that are stronger than a lot of guys in the weight room on you know on on one leg that they do things that a lot of guys can't do. We've been arguing about, um,
0: what was it, in uh Science and Practice. Oh, hypertrophy. Uh, about
3: hypertrophy. and like Is, hyper-
1: is myofibrillar-based hypertrophy considered hyperplasia? Yeah, because the way he yeah, did that's it. Sort of sarcomere- all right,
3: right you should fire. Blood. you get got to get rid of that guy. Yeah, he's that's out. Weight, that's right. No, he's well, he's well, got well, yeah, he. he can't, show him your arms. So You keep pulling that shirt down to cover your arms. You know about hypertrophy. Just tell <laughs> this is how you do it. Right? Yeah, yeah, Who cares what Like, Did you split fibers? I don't think so. Did they get bigger? Yes. It's well, all right. You said. His, you know, see the his dumbbell idea was,
0: well, was that, you know, uh, obviously there's certain rep range that builds the sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, which would be like more of a water-based kind of deal around it versus more myofibularism. And so we've been kind of like, and then he was like, well, is it, is it hyperplasia? And I'm arguing, I'm like, I don't fucking know, but here's the deal. I know that when people lift lower rep ranges with higher percentages, people get kind of a thicker, more dense muscle. If you do a lot of volume, with higher rep ranges, you look a little bit more
3: kind of bodybuilder-esque where, you know, the muscles get a little bit bloated. And I was yeah. like, I, you know, I it's mean- funny cause I go back all the time with people. And I think, I think the, the drug thing has influenced so much of how we think over the past 25 years that we have, if you go back, like that's what you said, you know you go back to, to George Zangus and those guys. I mean, these guys were some really big, thick guys who did very, very basic programs. If you go back to your early bodybuilders, you go back to Reg Park and guys like that. And you'll when you go back and read that stuff, really, really basic, you know five times five, not a lot of volume, not a lot of exercises. And it, we kind of got the, the bombing and blitzing, weeder thing kind of creeped its way in right along with the drugs from, say, late 70s on. And I think people have no idea. I don't think people have any idea how to get strong or how to get big. But well, they, they do because you talked about that, you know, genetically gifted phenomenon again. You know, you take a guy, a, a classic mesomorph who's playing American college football and curious George could be his strength coach and he's going to get bigger and stronger. Well, you
0: know, um, uh, I feel real fortunate to, you know, basically have grown up in George Angus' garage. I mean, and George was, you know, knew everybody and everybody knew him. And he was real forthright at a very young age with us. I mean, he would talk about, uh, you know, he always referred to, uh, Frank Zane used to come and train with all the guys of his powerlifting team. And they used to call him the chemist because he would have a doctor's bag of stuff. And we talked about, um, you know, the uh, amount of drugs those guys would take. But the one thing that was interesting is I remember Kazmaier, one of those dudes showed up one time and he had like a convertible Cadillac. And in the back, he had rigged up a blender And he had a nice chest in there with food. And every time he stopped wherever he was going, he would basically get out and make this shake and he would throw everything in the shake. It was like an apple, milk, chicken, whatever he wanted in the shake. And every time he would stop. And the guy, you know, they figured he was eating like, you know, 15,000 calories a day. And so what George was pissed off about, he said, you know, everybody fucking thinks it's drugs. And he said, the drugs don't really help as much as people do. It's actually the amount of food and eating. And he goes, also people don't know how to relax And that was a comment he made about uh, Schwarzenegger. He said, you know, when he met Arnold, he goes, Arnold used to nap constantly. He goes, the guy probably slept 14 hours a day. And everybody talks about Arnold's hustle. He goes, and he was training. He goes, that dude would train his ass off and sleep and eat. And that was the thing that George always talked about. He said, you know, these guys today, he goes, what they're doing is they're using more and more drugs to make up for the fact that they don't eat enough and they don't sleep enough. So it was kind of a deal. He's like, if you, you know. And he, he just talked about, um, uh, you know, all the old power lifters and this, and he goes, you know, he goes, they weren't taking nearly what the, what the guys today are. Uh, it's just the fact that most of these guys had no concept of it, but he also talked about, um, God, who was the big, the uh, big bench press dude. Um, fuck. I can't think of it was like big hairy chested, uh, day um, Doug Young? Yeah. Yeah. Doug Young. He talked about Doug Young. He goes, you know, was, uh, you know, his, the amount of food that Doug Young consumed, he goes, I've never seen anybody sit down and eat that much food. So that was always what I remember about George talking about eating and, um, you know, there was just, it was, it was pretty good. I mean, he goes, there was really no supplements back
3: then. I mean. But if you go back and read, like even go back and read super squats, go back and read the old Randall Strauss and stuff, you know, a gallon of milk a day, yep. there were all these, I mean, it, it's not the, we're not in a complicated, I always think I always tell somebody, there's not a lot of us who gave up our Mensa memberships. Maybe the two of you and me to come here, and do that. but in general, this place isn't populated by geniuses. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's it's not hard. It's not complicated. Oh, I always yeah. tell people it's a shit test. I have a slide of my dog shit uh, out in my yard, and I have it in my presentation. And I said, well, you know, look at it. It's shit, right? Mm-hmm. Said, it, that's pretty. That's and conditioning coaching. You can walk in the weight room and look, and I can be like, that looks like shit. <laughs> not very good you gotta fix that well the, the or you can look at is, it and think like that looks like ice cream like hey that's fucking that's perfect that's what i'm looking for
0: well the the but other one is, is uh uh old man Zangus always talked about um uh vince garanda's uh, stone age diet so he always be like hey here's the stone age diet and like he always talk about it. he's like those guys were pretty jacked and he talked about you know it was like raw milk and real food and that's kind of what we ate because uh you know george's best friend was uh Papadakis and they had a greek restaurant and so we would just eat. That was a big deal for us, is like steak and like this kind of basic Stone Age diet. So all of a sudden, you know, I always kind of ate that way, just because you know, uh, you know, it didn't make me feel bloated, and I always got bigger and stronger. And you know, squatted six ten by the time I was, you know, before I was twenty, and bench five hundred when I was twenty two, and um, you know, hit all these numbers. And the thing I always laugh about is uh, all of a sudden people start talking about this Paleo diet, and like they were talking about the Paleo diet, I'm like, you mean the Stone Age diet? And like it was just kind of funny and. You know, people. It just—I don't know, man. uh, The more, the more, the the farther I go in this thing, the more I look back to what we did back then, and it just seems to make a lot more sense than a lot of the shit
3: I see today. Well, that's why it's interesting. But I said, have you read Outliers yet? Yeah. Yeah. So you know, you think about it. You had your Outliers moment, much like you know, Steve Jobs and those guys growing up on the same street as Hewlett or Packard or whoever it was. You end up on the street with that guy. You know, I end up in a situation where I get dumped in with Mike Wojcik when I'm 17 years old, there's so many of these things that are relatively random that make us, it's, I guess, you know, you think, well, it's not luck because you kept going back to George's place and you kept doing the work, but there's this mixture of luck and opportunity and, we have great lucky to be at the intersection.
0: We, we had a great chat, uh, Dan John, who I, um, I, I work as a contractor for Naval Special Warfare, and we go around and I teach performance for the SEAL teams and I, I met Dan on a speaking engagement we did and I sat in and uh, really, really good motivational speaker, uh, like got a very, very cool perception of things and kind of a good sense of humor about himself. so he was on a podcast and he asked the two most important things for athletic success and for greatness was uh, genetics and geography. And I remember him saying, you can be the best hammer thrower in the world, but if you don't live in, you know, Finland or Iceland or one of these countries where that wants to throw the hammer, you're never going to basically have the opportunity to do it. And I always think like, you look at a lot of these great situations, it's just genetics and geography. I mean, but yeah. would I have been, you know, if, if I hadn't been steeped in this thing when I was, you know, just happened to train at this old man's garage, who literally just, it kind of makes me laugh when I first saw the CrossFit stuff, I was like, oh, it's like the garage I trained in. You know, because after we would lift weights, we had to walk up and down his steep ass garage with uh, heavy dumbbells. So we would just do trips up and down, up and down the garage with heavy dumbbells. And George called it like, you know, you got to get sweaty. It's do a little bit of conditioning so we can go out and eat some food. You don't want to, you don't want to get fat. So after we would train, we'd do a bunch of heavy farmer's walks. And that was part of our training. And they're like, it's called metabolic conditioning. I'm like, no, we've been doing that shit for like 25 years. Oh, that's,
3: that's my problem with CrossFit. I said, I've been doing – no one invented interval training. I mean, and somebody did, obviously, but it wasn't anybody at CrossFit at any time in well, the recent I, past. But that's like – Dan's a really good friend of mine too, and it's the same thing. You know, when you look, Dan, you know, it, you talk about you know geography, genetics. The kid that's the top hammer thrower in the U.S., his dad is an Irish guy, Connor McCullough, who I coached at BU, who was a great hammer thrower at BU in the 80s. And you know, it's genetics and the fa his his dad threw. And all of a sudden that kid, you know, and it's like you know, like Dan said, you know, Dan ends up at Utah State where there's some really good throwers and he ends up being a really good thrower. It it's not but that's why I think so much of and this is what I, I will give CrossFit the credit for. It is, you know, you were part of a community. Mm-hmm. And that ability to be part of a community and to be around like-minded people. It's like with my daughter. I work with our women's Olympic ice hockey team. And the main reason I went back to do it was because I had an 11-year-old daughter who was playing ice hockey. I said, this is going to be awesome for her to be able to be around these girls, to be able to be around Olympians. By the time my daughter was 15, she had a full scholarship to college to play ice hockey. She's still like – she's a junior. She's got another year of high school to go. She's already had a scholarship for two years. To play. And a lot of that, you know, you could look at that and think it's certainly not my genetic ability, particularly as a hockey player, because I've never played in a hockey game. And I'm not really that good an athlete. But it's the ability to be in those situations. And you talk about, like you said, you can call it opportunity. There's a lot of ways that we could look at it, but it's, it's getting people in situations that bring out the best in them. And that, as you said, the things that you were doing with you know, with the SEALs, with these people, you know, you you know, now, I mean, that's you know, that SEAL training is big. I'm like, SEAL training is great if you, you know, well, if, there's a chance someone's going to kill you.
0: Well, but- no, but but, but here, here's the biggest bullshit on that. What the SEALs did for their training is really what they do in Hell Week and what they do for their bud stuff. So that's what people are billing as SEAL training. The, all the guys that I worked with that were, you know, operators that were a little bit older, that were actually, you know, on teams, mission-specific stuff. They did standard strength conditioning programs, and they did sports-specific training, which looked like their normal training. Not sports-specific, but like the general-specific. Well, no, no. I mean, straight up, what I would call sports-specific, like case in point, they would lift weights and do all the different movements that we would talk about. But we just said sports-specific
1: bullshit. Let me finish.
0: And then, (laughs) damn it, fuck. Then they would go over, and they had a huge tank that looked like the front of a ship, and they had ropes, and they would swim in the water, and they would do all of what I call their sports-specific work which looked like trying to pull themselves out of the water, climb ropes, or they would go to the range and shoot, which were actually like what I look like is practice for like yeah. actual yeah. mission specific was type doing. Whereas when I look at sports specific training. It has to be done like, like people always think, Oh, we're doing sports specific stuff in the weight room. I'm like, there's no fucking grass out here. And unless we're punching and, and working like our actual technique and those are little components that we're breaking down. But at the end of the day, like the only way you're going to develop your sports specific deal is in the fight. And so for those guys, that's what I looked at their training. And I remember when I first went to work with them, I'm like, you see all this shit you do over here. This is never going to prepare you for this. And you know, I mean, but at the end of the day, we can make sure you're strong, stable, healthy, and that you have enough tools in the toolbox. So
3: when you go over here, you're not going to fall apart when you go run, you know, or try to hike. Right. Exactly. That's I'm actually speaking at the TSEC thing in San Diego in a month. And that's one of the things that I'm going to talk about with these guys is that, you know, it's, it really is, it's not any same thing. It's like, I can give a different five minute intro and then the same 55 minute talk everywhere I go. Mm -hmm. And I always say to people, it's about learning. I talk about learning to speak coach, learning to speak athlete. If you can learn the language of the people that you're going to talk to, then you can explain to them, why does this make sense for you? But the same thing, I'm selling the same thing. I always tell somebody, we do medicine ball throws. And, you know, if it's a baseball player, I'm like, it's like hitting a baseball. If I'm a field hockey player, I'm like, it's like driving a field hockey ball. If I'm a hockey player, I'm like, it's like shooting a slap shot. If I'm a tennis player, it's like hitting a forehand. It's like hitting a back. We're, through, we're doing the same freaking throw mm-hmm. every single time. So, so but, Mike, with that, I mean,
1: for you, maybe segueing into a little bit of kind of the unilateral versus bilateral, just uh, want to pick your brain there. You know, a big part of what we look at is the athlete's life cycle and training life cycle. And we're really we're really strong proponents of when a young athlete comes in, uh, assuming you assess them, the first position that we want to strengthen is kind of that bilateral, ready position that we refer to as the universal athletic position. It's kind of that ready position, breakdown position, toes forward, wide base of support, ready to go any direction. And the best way we know how to strengthen that and replicate that is with our back squats, so or our bilateral hip hinge. Um so that's a big component of our initial linear progression as well as the pushes, the pulls, uh, some dynamic pulling as well. I mean, whether or not your athlete can rack or front rack a power clean isn't necessarily it. If we get clean pulls instead, right on, we just want dynamic violent, uh, hip extension with, with like a clean type of movement. Uh, and then we ride that out through linear progression as long as we can to squeak out any sort of strength gains that we can, we can glean from what we call the novice window. Um, now understanding that once that's kind of, once that window collapses, then we really, then we start to focus in and work in our unilateral stuff, our lunges, our steps, our lateral steps, our uh, lateral lunges, things like that. And then we would, you know, more into like the Mike Boyle school of training Um, with your thought process. When did you, I know you're a big proponent of unilateral, but I'm probably, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Talk to me about like, what are your experiences with just squatting guys and bilateral movement? And why, why are you so quick to jump into the unilateral when you get
3: uh, Well, younger? you know, and it's funny, it, it, you know, it, it was a quick 16-year experiment. <laughs> so, uh,
1: <laughs> exactly.
3: Yeah. Basically, and, just really, and it's all honestly, So just, I believe like him. It. This buddy of mine, Jeff Oliver, who's another former NFL player, who's the strength coach at College of Holy Cross in Worcester, we used to talk about it all the time. You know, we were kind of getting at that, you know, at one point, we were years ago, we were at a Vern Gambetta seminar and I can remember he came back and he was doing like single leg cleans and single leg snatches. And I was like, you're freaking out of him. Like you're, what is wrong with you? And, and now we're doing that. But what happened to us over time, and this is what happens when you have a college football program is when you've got all these bodies, you start realizing that, and I wish I could pull up. I I don't think there's any way for you guys to see pictures on my, um, I'm going to try to figure out if there's a way I can do this, but. effectively, what you start looking at is we realized that 20% of our athletes were going to have have active back pain, not necessarily so that they couldn't lift, but they were going to be in the training. When we started tracking our numbers, this is probably in the 90s at Boston University with football. We had, we're a one double A school. We got roughly, you know, anywhere from probably 60 to 80 kids in the program. And we would have anywhere from 12 to 16 to 20 guys who were getting treatment for back pain. And I started to look at that and think, that's not a real good number. And, I, you know, being this is the, the we started getting these arguments. Our coach would be like, everybody has to test the squad. And we had a staff meeting one time where we were sitting around. I said, okay. And the head <laughs> coach was like, so you agree? I said, yeah, okay. I said, I just need you to sign a letter saying that you said that, that you mandated that regardless of my opinion or the athletic trainer's opinion, everyone tests in the squad. And he's like, well, I don't want to do that. I said, well, then I don't want to test everybody in the squad. I said, you can't tell me to go in and willingly hurt some people who I know are going to get injured at your request and have you not be willing to take responsibility for that. Which amazingly, of course, that was the end of everybody had to test in the squad at that time. And, but what used to happen is then you have your sort of malingerers who try to creep into that group of guys who aren't testing. So you know, the not, right? the time. Yeah, <laughs> but it's, it's, a good, it's a good term. No, it's but, a great so term. So you're trying to figure out, like I was always trying to figure out, how do I close the net? How do I close the loophole? How do I make this? I mean, I had belt squat machines. I had everything, you know, I was trying to figure out, how do I get this done? But eventually I got to a point, where, and this was going back to my friend Jeff Oliver. He said, if we could come up with a unilateral test where we could actually test a guy and have an idea how strong he was, would you – kind of bag it when you give up on squatting and I was like yes I would because I'm just tired like I said I'm tired of those test days where you know I go through test day and all I'm thinking about all test day when we're squatting is I hope someone doesn't get really not not even I hope someone doesn't get hurt I hope someone doesn't get badly hurt like I knew we'd have two or three guys that would go down you know back strains or whatever you know they're trying to get their max well you know we're one rm back squatting guys and and it was inevitable that guys were going to get hurt I just like I just don't want somebody to the blow on a disc. I don't want somebody to be out for the season, you know, to have a career ending injury because of something stupid that I'm doing. Yeah, worst nightmare. All right. Well, I mean,
0: that's, I mean, uh, like, like, how do you, and I always think about this, like as a strength coach, uh, you injure somebody and you have to go in and tell the head coach that you just lost, you know, this best player, or this guy because of, uh, you know, injury. I, I mean, I, I watched that happen, you know, for, for years. I mean, uh, in the NFL, dude, our deal was like, man, if you get hurt in the off season, you get hurt in the weight room. If somebody's getting fired, it might be you or the strength coach.
3: Right, exactly. And and that's, you know, when we talk about that, that's a huge part of the problem is that you realize, and that's why in the NFL they go sort of the total opposite way in terms of some guys just go like, just stay out of the way. Don't get anybody hurt. Mm -hmm. Don't make anybody do anything they don't want to do. I was literally trying, you know, I'm looking for the perfect situation. What I'm looking for is, okay, is there a way that I can get guys stronger and girls stronger, everybody stronger that I'm dealing with, but feel like I'm really doing this in that, you know, you go back to this hypocritical, do no harm. I want to do this in the best way possible. And that's not an easy thing to do.
1: So, so he's shown us uh, two athletes, that two young ladies who are sitting on a bench, probably, you know, 20 inches, 22 inches tall bench, and their head is literally the same height. But you can see the gal behind, her legs are lengthy.
0: Well, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, all athletes are going to be different, different.
3: Metro Metro. right but but, but the, the thing is think the about the extremes though from an anthropometric okay. standpoint because like i said now look at i'm gonna go share a screen again and let's see and
1: now you can see the gal is head at her shoulders i mean easily right. taller uh but same torso torso the one chick looks, her like her a whistle whistle spider. She looks like
3: right a spider. and but the problem is as strength and conditioning coaches we try to force both of those people to bilateral squat one is never going to be good at it and is going to get injured. That one that you said looks like a spider, Sydney, you know, six-foot tall, 14-year-old high school basketball player, she's going to develop a back problem. I can guarantee it 100%. if she doesn't, she's going to develop a knee problem. Yeah. And it's going to happen because she's segmentally not made to do this. And, and what happens is we get into arguments, guys like you and I, like if I look at the two of you guys, I'm going to guess you can both squat pretty good.
2: I'm because
3: probably the best, yeah. You're pretty mesomorphic characters, right? And sure, but, sure. But the people that are arguing, I always said you never see like a six ten basketball player arguing in favor of bilateral training.
0: Well, I'm I'm six I'm six and uh, always squatted pretty well, so yeah. Maybe. But
3: I'm saying, and you're probably the rare, relatively proportional six six versus, and that's why you said, like, if you look at a lot of the offensive tackles, were you a guard?
0: Um, well, actually, I played tackle in college. Uh, Started four years a guard and – or, sorry, five years a guard and four a tackle. So I, um, I probably split it, you know, between right tackle,
4: left
3: guard, and right guard. Right. And so if you look at the average now tackles in the NFL, they're much more basketball player bodies than they are football player bodies.
4: Sure. Mike, I, Mike, I faced this with uh, freshmen and all the way up to a senior for offensive linemen. I was in charge of the offensive linemen in Texas and just making sure everybody hit their squats. So the problem I faced was – the freshmen had to do the same weight as the seniors. Seniors were able to knock it out, but whether it was chains or bands or anything, these freshmen were struggling and they'd be forcing themselves to sit to a box. And I would literally just play a do no harm coach. And so I would say to, uh, to my detriment, just fuck the spreadsheet. I take these guys and just show me you can hold a lunge. And they couldn't squat the weight, they couldn't even hold a bodyweight lunge. And so I had to face the, the head coach or the head strength coach who then had to face the the head coach, and shit just would roll downhill. So I'm curious if you have experienced uh, or seen a shift in sport coach involvement in the weight room over the years.
3: Well, football's gone backwards, particularly at the collegiate level. NFL football has gone forward. Collegiate collegiate football now is about idiots on YouTube screaming and yelling, and basically if you get the guy that screams the loudest, He's oh. the best collegiate strength coach. We
0: we've and, seen some jackassery in uh, just some of <laughs> these things, and like I like the hard thing for me is uh, I wonder how many eggs are breaking to make these omelets. Oh so I mean, yeah. Kind of the, yeah, but
3: the difference is you've got an unlimited supply of eggs. Yeah, and they're really good. You know, they're they're cage free, grass fed. You know, <laughs> eggs that someone just keeps going out and getting you, and if you break them, no, The bad, the good though, the bad thing is at the college level, no one really cares, particularly if you break alignment. If you break a really good back or receiver early on, they might get a little pissed. Linemen takes some time. They're sort of like the slow-cooked egg. Yep. So, you know, it usually takes two or three years for that thing to be worth anything to you. Sure. And if it breaks early on, you don't worry about it. Yeah, you just go get another one. Right. And NFL level, that doesn't happen anymore. And that's why the NFL has gone in one direction. If you look at, like, Denver hires Luke Richardson and Oakland hires Joe Gomes. And, yep. you know, people are hiring some really smart guys who are really good strength coaches. College is going the other way in terms of they're hiring these – youtube fools who you know scream and yell and like breaking boards over their head and stuff you know and it's like okay i can yell at an 18 year old and bad you know you know be a badass and scream and yell at this kid who has no leverage and you know oh he's doing exactly what i tell him to do and i'm motivating him
0: have uh
3: yeah, um, we
0: have a uh, uh obviously you know Stu mcgill uh good friend right. of ours and so um yeah we've had Stu on our, our podcast a couple times and i hit him up on things Uh, we kind of got into a talk talking about bilateral versus unilateral. And he actually credits you with seeing people's hip capsules uh, starting to, you know, cause problems and actually loosening the hip capsule. And he was, you know, we were talking about the difference. He's like, you know, Mike Boyle and all these unilateral movements, uh, he goes, I've seen uh, uh, from people, you know, taking his lead and actually overloading that movement pattern, actually loosening up the hip capsule. And he goes within the last 10 or 15 years, I've seen a dramatic increase in loose hips, from what I believe is uh, uh, you know, uh, people just doing unilateral movements as, uh, from Mike Boyle. So I always thought that was kind of an interesting one. Yeah and that's yeah. All,
3: and, I, and I love Stu and I think he's a brilliant guy, but I also feel like um, that's 100 percent anecdotal. You know what I mean? He has nothing to base that on huh. because we know like we have no like our injury rate is like zero. <laughs> and so it's one of those, you know giving me it's like give me credit for global warming. You know what I mean? Like, you know, well, he actually credited you with global warming in the next, yeah it, was, yeah, it was the, it was the next, no.
1: yeah, it was-
3: and because he's the level other level. One. You know, they've talked about disruption of the pelvic ring. Like, I always feel like what's happened now, and I just posted this on my strengthcoach.com site the other day. In terms of we're in, like, we're in between the uh, violent opposition and the generally accepted stage, you know, they talk about most new ideas first, they're ridiculed, sure. then they're violently opposed, and then they're accepted. We're getting really close to the acceptance stage where, and the last holdouts are these people who, um, I don't know, you know whether they see boogeyman or they make things up or whatever it is, and they say, "Oh, you're disrupting SI joints." We're lo- one. If we were loosening up hips, I'd probably tell you that was a good thing as opposed to a bad thing, in in a general sense. We get our you know our labral tears and things like that are are just about zero. Mm-hmm. But again, we, it's how you teach it, it's how you coach it, it's how you it's position. Position it. Yeah, you know, and that's and that's, and, that's and, the so thing. Uh, that's the difference if people. Look at it. It's like someone saying, um, you know, we're gonna, I don't know. I don't know who gets credit for squatting, but I don't think they get blame for all the people that get hurt. You know, it might be like one of these. Well, geez, he was the first guy, you know, uh, Doug Hepburn was the first guy to really popularize squatting. So all the back injuries that came from, you know, squatting, obviously, were Doug Hepburn's fault because he was out there telling people they should put bars in their back. I don't know if it was him. kind mm picking a strength athlete from sure,
0: sure. the, the or, 50s. Or, or you could say Bill Starr. I mean, Bill Starr was, yeah. you know, I, I remember, uh, uh, you know, Zeng is giving us uh, Bill Starr's book and, you know, and he's talking about his good friend Bill Starr and, uh, you know, looking at that, I mean, he was really the big proponent of, you know, let's put a heavy bar on the back and, you know, squat till we go. I mean, there's an yeah. Olympic
3: lifter, And that's where we started. And it's funny, but our, my weight training, my third guy at Springfield was a guy named Bruce Buckby who came from University of Hawaii and had been training with Bill Starr. And that was our weight training book. We went from a Nautilus program the year before hmm. to Bill Starr, Strong Shall Survive. Yeah. My sophomore year is our strength training book. But, you know, that was a groundbreaking work. And my feeling yeah. is that was a groundbreaking work at its time. And I think the difference that we know more now and we've seen more now. There's been a lot more water under the bridge right now. And I look at it and think, you know, I'm like, you guys, I'm going to the gym with my son when I get done with this podcast and he's going to gobble squat. Yeah, he's eleven years. He's eleven years old, mm-hmm. and you know he's gonna he's gonna clean, and he is gonna rack it. And he's gonna get his elbows up, and he's gonna learn to be a good Olympic lifter, because I think those are you know I always talk about that's like the fundamentals, the ABCs of training. Exactly, you've got to be able to squat, you've got to be able to clean, you've got to be able to do a bench press, you've got to be able to do a chin up. The problem is as you get older, yeah, you have to look at that and think. Is that necessarily, you know, it's like looking at somebody and saying, okay, you know, we're going to have Dick and Jane books forever in school. You know, you're going to, you went to Cal and they said, well, here, you know, see, spot, run. And you're like, well, geez, I read that, you know, 20 years ago. I don't think I really need that right now. Hey, sorry, that's the way you do it, kid.
0: Well, I, I always <laughs> you know, look that's back a, to,
3: you know, Berkashansky
0: and a lot of those guys had you know, their special exercises. And like that, that kind of tripped me out a little bit where they kind of made the distinction between like, here's general strength training. And then obviously here's special exercises. And I remember hearing the correlation where, you know, I think somebody on something asked, you know, what are special exercises? And the guy, and the guy basically said to him, I think it was on uh, a form. forum. If you have to ask, you're not ready. <laughs> and it's basically this idea that special
3: exercises are for special athletes that are more advanced. As you earn it. As, it, as, 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 you, as you earn. It. Yeah. And, it's like, and if you, know, you think that's Bosch, that's Bodnerchuk, that's, there's a lot of really smart guys. You know, if you look at Bosch's book, he's showing people doing single leg Olympic lifting. I watch my girl's single leg clean now and I think, why didn't we do this sooner?
0: What, like single clean, like a dumbbell kettlebell or a barbell? No, like a
3: bar. Barbell on one leg, standing on one leg. But but all, you know, and then you get into this, the whole bilateral deficit thing. I mean, there's a, unfortunately, I'm running out of time because i got to get these guys to the gym. I would love to. I'd love to stay with you. I could probably talk to you guys till tomorrow. And well, let's get another one. Yeah, well, well, oh, I'll, I'll, do, I'll do another one in a heartbeat. Because it's beautiful. It's, it's, it's always cool
0: really when you meet people that, uh, you know, have a similar approach on this. And like what we like to actually comment on is uh, non crazy people. So on occasion, we've had people on where you're like, this is a crazy person. And then you meet other people where you're like, dude, non-crazy
3: person. Thank you. you know? well, but the other thing is, you you know, um, uh, there's a Buddhist quote that says, in the beginning minds, there are many, ex- uh, many choices. In the experts' minds, there are few. And I think there's a reason why the best people in the world tend to agree on a lot of stuff because when you've done your reading and when you've done your studying and when you're not attached to a particular dogma, you will probably come to a certain place. Which is where you guys are, where I probably am right now, where you think we agree on a lot more than we disagree on, mm-hmm. because we've done the research, you've done the training yourself, you've done the research, you've then gone and done it to other people, because I always say to somebody, "Hey, it's all great to say, "Oh yeah, you know squat till you puke, do this, do that," until you hurt somebody's kid." Or until you ruin somebody's career. And then all of a sudden, you're not nearly as bold as you were the day before. Because everybody's had that miserable moment where they realize, geez, that kid just got hurt. And that was my fault. Yeah,
0: or 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 the the thing which is hard for me is, um, you know, dude, I've had so many injuries playing the NFL from, you know, knee surgeries. And, you know, thank God the one thing I've never had is any back. So I never had any back, but I had shoulder and knee and ankle. And um, getting hurt bums me out. So anytime we do any training or stuff and somebody gets hurt, like I take it personally, I'm like, I'm so sorry you got hurt. And I think the one funny thing is, is, uh, for me, the idea of getting hurt is like, we're going to need a surgery and I'm probably going to be fucked up. So the hard thing that I have to, uh, deal, and and you, you made that funny comment about a malinger, which I haven't heard used since I want to say, uh, the, the old trainer at the chiefs, uh, Bud, and I can't remember Bud's last name, but Bud referred to a guy as a malinger and I laughed. And I, and I was like, is that a comment phrase? He goes, oh, yeah. He goes, you got to always look for those fucking guys. So <laughs> yeah. that comment, which is the guy who, you know, goes in. And, like, the college sports is full of those guys. Nate Austin? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. no, the malinger is the guy who kind of – and he was talking about it. Oh, you know, claims an injury and kind of uh-huh. always, you know, in the training room. And, like, dude, the training room's addictive. Like, I stayed away from it. Like, unless I was fucking bleeding or had a bone sticking through, I didn't go to the training room. Right. And uh, I hate uh, sorry i know you're a trainer but uh i'm not a fan <laughs> of act so i call them ankle tapers and i'm like Dude, i look at all your modalities and there's nothing in there that can help me so I'm
3: Try, trust me i have i'm still i just re-upped my certification and i have not practiced athletic training i think since uh, 1982 so the, the uh, fucking worst. I'm, I'm not i'm not offended <laughs> yeah i am and,
0: and you know why it's because um you know what sucks with training uh, or with with trainers is they, they have a really very limited uh, arsenal in which they can do it's icer stem and it's fucking uh, iontophoresis if something was really bad or maybe um, ultrasound
3: and taping ankles and ice and it
0: just i'm like dude there has to be more to this
3: right and, uh, so what what you realize is that they don't want to do any hands-on work at all no and so i mean that's why for us like we used to, i used to i hire my own massage therapist you know i mean we have a whole different angle on that athletic training how we take care of our athletes than uh, and again, same thing. It's become more common. A lot of the stuff that we're doing. That's what's funny about it is that it's all becoming more common. Yet people still think. I always said, like you guys, you know, even people like you that I haven't met. I think people expect to see Richard Simmons pop up on the screen, you know, and I'm going to have like leg warmers and a headband, and you know, <laughs> no one's going to, no one's going to want to lift weights. And it, it, I always tell people, come watch. It couldn't be further from the truth, but but you'll see some things that will make you think. Uh-huh. You'll see some things that will make you go. Hmm, I wonder if I'm doing the right thing. And I look at it and I don't know. I mean, I know I always tell somebody I know the best way to do it.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: It's the way that I'm going to go do it today. Because if there was anything that I thought was better, I would go do that.
1: Mm-hmm, yeah. You
3: know, and I always tell people I'm not doing I'm not trying to make anybody worse. I'm not trying to get anybody hurt. I've got you know, people's children, friends, millionaires, you know, at Olympic medalists I've got all these people under my care. My goal is for them all to succeed, not for them to fail. You know, I'm not looking at it and thinking, "Hey, I'm going to do these really screwed up things to draw attention to myself, so that all my athletes can not achieve their, their goals and their dreams." Well, that's because
0: you're steeping it like similar to what we do. Is um, I always said, "Dude, I'm a performance whore. If there's something that makes my athletes better, I'm going to use it." And I think, like you made a great point, and actually, it uh, it sounded exactly like my talk where I get up and I'm like, dude, I'm not steeped in dogma. I'm not here to preach something that, you know, this is what we do. What we're talking about is ramping up athletic performance by anything that allows us to do that. And if it's, you know, bilateral, unilateral, whatever helps my athlete get better, I'm going to find it. And what we run into is I think people are selling things all the time. This is my system. This is what I've done. I've steeped myself as this. And I think people can uh, protect these little fiefdoms because they have to, because this is where they fucking are. And it drives me crazy. And I'm like, dude, uh, you know, do I have to buy your bands or do I have to buy your, you know, uh, whatever you're selling because that's what you're doing? And, um, you know, it's and and I think that's what fucking kills me with most of this stuff. And I'm like, dude, I'll use anything I can. Um, But the one big thing is because we've tried just about everything. I mean, I've done everything in my life in terms of training. And I'll tell you what works and what doesn't work because I'm open ended and open minded enough to try everything. You really, give, oh, that's stupid, it doesn't work. Have you ever tried it? No, I would never do that. Well then how the fuck do you know it doesn't oh, work? I have
3: that all the time. You know, people say oh, agility ladders, you know, slide boards, this doesn't work. That. I'm like, you can't tell me something doesn't work that you haven't used. And I'm talking about use it, use it for six or eight weeks. Yeah. And then yeah. you oh, it, it doesn't work. Oh,
1: that's the worst. And I, you I
3: chucked it. it. Okay, it's I'm gonna be like, all right, that's great. You tried it six or eight weeks, you chucked it, you don't think it works. But I know the things that we've hung on to. You know, everybody slide boards, everybody foam rolls. There are certain things that everybody does because we know that we've seen the benefit of these things. And and as I said, I mean, I, I could literally go on forever. I, because I I'm used so the slide
0: board uh, it pretty extensively when I tore my ACL my knee rehab and would use it periodically in the beginning of the uh, uh, off-season just to try to get balance, a little bit of rhythm, and try to like, you know, that ability to, to decelerate and then be able to push back. And always enjoyed the slide board, and then ended up as the, you know, start dropping it out, and I'd use it for upper body stuff. We'd use slide board push ups, you know, overhead and side, different ways. And um, you know, whenever I hear people rip on the slide board, I'm like, Have you done the slide board? Because uh, it's you know, it, it was great for my ACL rehab and it forces
4: you know, the toes forward position and control and inertia. Yeah,
3: yeah. And, and you know, and and you know, concentric abduction, eccentric adduction. You know, there's all kinds of stuff that's going on in slide board. I have two offensive tackles right now, one from. Tampa Bay and one from Denver, we slide board twice a week. Yeah, Because I, I said to them, you know, how much, you know, at least half of your game is sideways or backwards. And
0: you're usually on one leg.
3: Yeah. I mean, you, you think about, I mean. In, and you're in, really always on one leg, you know, because you yeah. played offensive line. You are never, ever, like, driving yeah. somebody like a sled from two legs pushing through. That doesn't, you're stepping through people all the time.
0: Well, and the idea is most contact is made when you're on one leg and your ability to put down that second leg really fast in a good position to basically accept and be able to deliver a blow was yeah. everything. Uh, we started using like a, like a band around the top of the knees, like the perform better bands when yeah. we would do the slide board. And, you know, cause what, what we started seeing is that, you know, people start letting the knees cave. And so by throwing the band on, it was a tactical cue to start driving the knees out, which ended up lighting up the hips and helping the glutes. And like that little trick alone, um, you know, we started using that in terms of band walks, lateral band walks and what I, you know, people were like, all oh, this stuff. I'm like, dude, let me tell you, do that stuff because what it ends up doing is ends up waking up and prepping you for what's ahead and I think what people don't have any concept of is like uh, for a lot of athletes they need to be reminded that things are available to them and if you can create a, a you know, a structure or more importantly a situation where you remind them of what's there it makes the training much more
3: meaningful. Right or if you create a system where they don't have choice I mean and I hate to say that but I don't like choice mm-hmm. you're going to do uh, you know if we get two days you're doing this if we get three days you're doing this if we get four days you're doing this yeah. you don't get to choose anything yeah, well, a wise one, man. Not one to. thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Man with
1: the choices, a man with a choice is a man with a problem. Yeah, wise man. man. A man with a choice is like. a man
3: with a problem. I got to get out of here. I got to take. I was supposed Thanks, to take Mike. these kids to the gym at three fifteen. Thank you guys. But if you do want to set up another one, let me know. I'd love to All do it again. Out? For it was sure. Great meeting you guys. Awesome. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank okay. Thank you. bye. Bye.
2: Now it's time for you to empower your performance. I highly recommend that you check out Coach Mike Boyle's blog and podcast. They're both amazing resources for any coaches out there who are looking to expand their knowledge and get an insight into his view of unilateral training. There are links on this show's blog post on our page, uh, www.powerathletehq.com, but most of what you need can be found on strengthcoach.com. That's Mike Boyle's uh, main page. Check that out. Until next time, bye!